You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Again, another prayer from the 28 prayer book, just because we were a little bit nearer to death in the 28s than we are in the, the, uh, the, 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 well, whatever we are now, the 18s. Um, uh, Let us pray. This is a prayer which may be said by the minister on behalf of all present at a visitation. So that's sort of the the context. If there's a a body that's died, um, or being near to death, it was probably handled by several people in the congregation, um, maybe even family members. Probably this person died at home, didn't die in a hospital, didn't die in a in a uh, what we call a nursing home or a retirement community or assisted living now. So that's what I mean when they were a little bit nearer to death. It was physically handled and it was much closer um, in the, uh, uh, well, most of our history until really um, the middle of last century. So that's the context, letting people come in. Hey. Um, so here's a prayer which may be said. O oh God, whose days are without end, and whose mercies cannot be numbered. Make us, we beseech thee, deeply sensible of the shortness and uncertainty of human life. And let thy Holy Spirit lead us in holiness and righteousness all our days, that, when we shall have served thee in our generation, we may be gathered unto our fathers, having the testimony of a good conscience, in the communion of the church, in the confidence of a certain faith, in the comfort of a reasonable, religious, and holy hope, in favor with thee, our God, and in perfect charity with the world, all which we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey. Um, so, this morning I'm going to try to stay pretty close to my notes, just because I want to be able to get through. Um, the last of a short series, three-week series, on being mortal, our mortality, um, our perishable bodies, which will be raised imperishable. And I want to rush, hopefully not too much, but to get to uh, the real hope, which is what's in the handout. Um, uh, word from Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians and also in Romans 6. A reasonable, certain, and holy hope, as the prayer just said. Um, but to pull the string tight, um, a couple of things to kind of go back and just remember. Uh, just talking to Jason Wallace, um, uh, who's also teaching about death, three ways to die, Socrates, the today, next week will be Muhammad, and then the week after that will be um, Christ. Uh, but we were talking about death and just it being decidedly unnatural. Um, not in the sense that that uh, it's not going to happen, or certainly not in a Mary Baker Eddy Christian science sense, where what's truly true is the spiritual, and what's not real is the material. That's what Christian science will think, and so she has the language of passing on, or passing, or moving. Um, Unnatural in the sense that it was not in the design, it is not, present tense, it is not in the design and plan of God for his good creation. Um, That all creation shall be renewed in what's called the new heavens and the new earth, as it comes down and invades this mortal perishable life where death will show me its death in the death of Christ and when Christ comes back and that's where I want to get to at the end but starting here at the beginning um, all things will be made new behold I am coming soon you know some of the great great words of Revelation 22 um, uh, come Lord Jesus amen I mean that's how the, the Bible ends 
because it's this this certain reasonable and holy hope. Um, not like I hope that it doesn't. Uh, I hope it stays dry today so I can get my leaves out of my yard. Um, not like that. But this is truly true, really real, and actually actual. I can stand in this hope. It's a certainty. That's what the Bible means when it has hope. It's not the way we use hope. Hope is a very specific word. This will happen. Um, to the same degree that you could say, the sun is going to set tomorrow, or it's not, because Christ has come back. <laughs> One of those two things is certain, and it will happen. Um, uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So saith Isaiah 7, one of the great Advent texts. Um, I think it's Advent, Isaiah 7. So that's all that. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. I need to stay on notes, otherwise I'm never going to get here. <laughs> um, death, what is it? Peter Kreft, one of a, a, a philosopher who's still is very active and a good writer, um, he said this, just another way to examine how we, especially as parents and adults, try to convince children what they seem to know automatically. <laughs> um, there's a lot in that statement about a lot of different things. Um, uh, it's like we're trying to convince kids, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And the kids are like, well, wait a minute. When she called me fat, it really hurt. When he said I was slow, it really hurt. And we're trying, no, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. And then we're just sort of creating all sorts of neuroses, if you want to sort of hear that part. Um, same thing about death. Children know that death is not good. It is not good. Um, and so here's a story. A few years ago, this is Peter Kraft writing, a relative of my neighbor died suddenly and unexpectedly at the age of three. My neighbor's son, then about seven, asked his mother, where is my cousin now? She did not believe in any form of life after death, and she wanted to be honest with her son so that she could not tell him that his cousin was now in heaven. But she had just read one of the books that I've been criticizing on how to talk to children about death, that it's natural, just like the flowers grow and then the flowers die, and that's okay. Dogs grow up and then they die, and that's okay. And we all become fertilizer, and it's okay. Um, uh, I've criticized on how to talk to children about death, and it's, quote, wisdom made sense to her but not to her son. She answered, Your cousin has gone back to the earth, where we, will all, where we all came from. All of nature is a cycle. Death is a natural part of that cycle. When you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that your cousin's life is fertilizing those flowers. She was so naive that she was surprised when her son screamed, I don't want him to be fertilizer, and ran off. <laughs> the seven-year-old Got it. I mean, he knows that death is not natural. Dylan Thomas, this Welsh poet, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Um, outside of Christ, I want to make sure we have that word loud and clear today. Um, death, Mark, is, is fearsome. We're going to talk a lot about judgment and why judgment is so strongly associated with death, but not quite yet. Um, Death has this unnaturalness to it. We know that we're not made for it, but it somehow crept into our existence as an intruder, the great robber. Um, C.S. Lewis, who many would know, married late in his life. I mean, crusty old bachelor, if there ever was one. He was angular, irascible, just an odd man in a lot of ways. Great, great, great man. Um, 
But he finally, uh, in a weird way, met this woman, Joy Davidman. They were actually married twice. First was a civil marriage, just so she could uh, get her green card and stay in what, what England would have their green card in 1950. Uh, and then they, lo and behold, fell in love and had a really great sort of love affair, love story. Um, uh, about a year after they were married the second time, real love, she got bone cancer and, and ended up dying. And so if you've read his Grief Observed, this is the book, what we would call now his journal, uh, his grief journal. And one of the things he writes in there is this, same idea that, you know, this idea that death doesn't matter, it's not real. C.S. Lewis, it is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or that death doesn't matter. There is death, and whatever is matters. And whatever happens has consequences, and it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces? If I were allowed to search all of them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? I mean, even as I read it, I stir emotion. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. Um, death always has this sense of judgment. How do we know it's not natural? Because it always has this sense of judgment finality, and end. What's the great image of death? One of them, the grim reaper. What's the reaper? He's coming to reap or to harvest, uh, to bring forth at a last judgment um, or a last ending, the harvest. And now, like the parable of the wheat and the tares that our Lord tells, um, Surprise, I'm no botanist, um, but so I'm told, and you can see it, I actually looked on the internet, you know, the wheat grows up, and then there's this little weed called a tear, which also grows up, and until it matures, unless you really knew what you were looking at, you can't tell the difference between the two. And so when he says that the tares are sown in with the wheat, or the weeds are sown in with the wheat, and you start plucking them up, you don't know what you're plucking, the good or the bad, the wheat or the tares. When do you know? Well, the harvester, the reaper, has to wait until the head of the grain begins to form. And even then, it's pretty close. You can get it wrong pretty easily if you don't know what you're looking at. But he has to make a judgment, an evaluation. The grim reaper coming at the end of our lives, making a judgment or an evaluation. Why is death an executor to come and execute or deliver this judgment? Why do we always hear at the end of life the language of morality? He was a good person. She deserves to, uh, if anybody deserves to go and be with her family in the good place, you know, kind of a TV show, um, uh, it would be her. I mean, she led a good life. She was nice. She was kind. Her children, you know, and you start having this language of judgment and evaluation of some sense. It's natural. And then the fear of what if I'm not enough? What if that thing which I know about or which a few know about but nobody else knows about, what if that carries the day, this fear of did I do enough, did I spend enough, why did I spend so much time working, I wish I spent more time, all judgment, evaluation, you know, the great sort of uh, 
tipping points of a scale? Why did I spend more time with family? Um, if I would have done that with my children that year, would they have turned out better? Is it my fault? You know, all this language of judgment. And it's instantly, instantly recognized around death. And to, to act otherwise is, is, is naive, as, CS, or as, a, as Peter Kreft would say. To act like, no, it's just fertilizer. It's no big deal. You just move on and you take a last breath. And then in six months' time, you're flower food. Or, you know, Dead Poet Society, worm food. Remember that scene? Um, and it's wrong. It's an injurious word to try to tell people that it doesn't matter. We know that we weren't made for this world because we fear it so much. Um, so, um, I'm going to try to get through this. this. Try to bring a little bit of Scrooge into this. If you remember Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, it's actually called a ghost story, subtitled A Ghost Story of Christmas, where the three ghosts, ghosts are dead. <laughs> he was dead as a doornail. I don't know what's so particular about a doornail, but that's what Scrooge, you know, that's what all the language is about death. It's a really dark story. It's a good story. Um, he goes through, and instantly there's this sense of morality where you start to come through. Scrooge confronts the finality of death. Um, if death were just the natural end for each of us, as simple as the next step of, of grass clippings or the leaves that I'll rake today because they, they lived their season and now they're going away, then Scrooge, early in the story, was right. Remember when the men came by and said, Mr. Scrooge, it's Christmas. Would you like to share some money? It's typical this time of year. And, and he says, um, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? You know, of course there are, Mr. Scrooge. That's what we're collecting. No, I wish to be left alone. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned, but they cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. But Mr. Scrooge, many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they should rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Do you remember that line? It's a pretty harsh line. He's right if death is natural. And if there's no big deal that sort of just goes along, then it puts everything up, which you would call a moral equivalency. It doesn't really matter who helps who or how people end because it's just a sand in an hourglass and it goes away and so much human suffering in the world so much the better to decrease the population so that the, the fewer utility, the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people, or expediency where you can have the greatest good with the least effort or something like that is the, is the reasonable move on the table. But obviously Scrooge doesn't stop there. How is he confronted um, with the utter finality of his terrible death? Well, I think of all things, I found this other quote. You know, I'm always reading Luther. He found, I mean, it's as if... He was thinking about Scrooge when he was looking at this, with the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and then, of course, the Grim Reaper or something like that in the ghost of Christmas future. Um, uh, Luther contrasts Simeon's song, what we call the Nunc Dimittis, or the Dimittis, uh, in Luke 2. Do you remember Simeon, the great old man who was promised uh, that his eyes would behold face to face the Savior of the world before he died? And he comes through at the very end in Luke 2:28, uh, when the, the child Jesus came to him. Simeon took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, not fear, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What Luther saw um, as he wrote this, uh, this reflection on death, it's, the one, it's one thing to be shown the past and the present by the first two ghosts, like Scrooge did in A Christmas Carol. 
to kind of confront, oh, it used to be so good, or ah, I wish I would have had this, but that's not enough. It's not enough to change you. It's the certain finality of death. Just like what C.S. Lewis said, is the word so hard to understand? She's dead. She died. She's not coming back. I could search every star and solar system in the entire universe, and what I know is I won't see her face. Her hand won't touch me again. I won't see her. Luther, to be sure, at death, it hurts to leave wife and child, good friends, beautiful homes, and other things which one lives here with, uh, other things which one lives with here on earth. And yet is nothing compared, and yet it is nothing compared with the misery of knowing that we are sinners, of awaiting the judgment of God, of ever being exposed to death, which we can neither ward off nor escape. Therefore, the world reverses the song of good Simeon and sings when the last hour approaches. So this is Scrooge's song. This is going to be one of the things I'm following this Christmas. Scrooge's song. Remember when he goes silently with the ghost of Christmas future to visit his grave marker. And all the other people, he starts to see the bedsheets and he wonder, who is this person? Surely, surely this is not yet final. Isn't there a way to change this? Here's the song, not Simeon's song, but Scrooge's song at the, uh, the, the visit of the ghost of Christmas future. O oh God, I have not been thy servant, and I now depart in unrest. My heart is troubled and sorrowful, and does not know which way to turn. What I leave here on earth I well know. What I shall get there I cannot know, and besides, I worry about God's wrath, punishment, and eternal damnation. There is a certainty and finality that emerges with death as we fear as we know that there's a judgment like wheat and tares um, and we you know am I enough is it enough what about her what about him what about that what about this uh, drawing that line tight what is our hope what's the question today if death is our enemy and a statement if death is a statement against the creative liveliness, lifeliness of God, and death is immediate judgment in which the grim reaper comes both to harvest us as wheat and tares, to judge whether we are wheat and tares based upon what, what he can see. What hope do we have? What hope would we have? And here we come. As I mentioned last week, the death of death in the death of Christ. Death has met its death in the death of our Lord and Savior, Christ, our full, perfect, sufficient, confident, certain, and sure hope that rides squarely on Christ's death and resurrection for us. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15. First part on this, and a quick word of hope also from George Herbert, the great Anglican poet and thinker of, uh, of the early 17th century. Paul, um, you know, this will be read at many of our funerals and was read at many funerals that we've been to. Um, his, uh, the end of his reflection on death, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. George Herbert imagined this conversation a Christian has with death, almost mocking, picking up Paul's cadence there. Oh, death, where is your victory now? Oh, death, where is your sting? And in the words of Herbert, putting him in with this dialogue between Christian and death, Christian says, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? And death replies, Alas, poor mortal, void of story. Go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. Spare not to thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. Just found those this week. I think it's an inspired little verse. Um, this, uh, this mocking attitude that now freely we can have with death, that thou shall be so much worse than I shall be no more. Dwight Moody, the great evangelist, knew this. Many of us would have heard this. It's a great word. Near the end of his age, he was sort of a Billy Grahamish type. <coughs> Moody Bible Institute and Publishing House. Some people know him. He, uh, he wrote to a friend, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. <laughs> At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this cold clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. So, coming to a conclusion, thinking about death, um, with all the hope that we have, um, uh, with the death of death and the death of Christ, death no longer has its victory over us or even its sting. Um, one could even go so far as to begin to imagine death not as the grim reaper, but as a gardener. Um, the grim reaper no longer reaps grimly, but as the sower of the seed which falls into the ground and dies and is raised to life. As John says in 12, his 12th chapter of his gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is the Lord, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. Another way we might call it is death is no longer the reaper, the grim reaper, but something more akin to even a hotel manager. Here's what I mean by this. It's that word sleep that's there in 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep. This great word sleep is the same word that we get the word cemetery from. And so a cemetery has its roots and origin. It's almost like a dormitory or a sleeping space. Because what happens with a cemetery? Um, uh it's as if the grave markers, or you could say, GP, I, I, I'm totally ripping somebody else off here, so I did not make this up. You know, all you know, I think this is fantastic, so I didn't make it up. They're like GPS markers. All those little crosses that we find in the graveyard out here in our columbarium. Uh, it's as if everybody in the grave is saying, "I've already died." You know, uh, for Romans 6:7, which is there on your sheet, for the one who has died already has been set free from sin. And so everybody in the grave is saying, I'm marked for the one who is coming back. 
And when he comes and he says these words, Arise, O sleeper, and wake. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There ain't no grave that's going to hold me down. That's the old hymn that comes around this side. So much of this story um, is like that other story that Jesus told about uh, a man who finds a buried treasure in his field. And then very strangely, he finds the treasure. What does he do? He doesn't take the treasure. He doesn't just pick it up and go. Remember, he like leaves it, buries it again, goes away, buys the field, so he didn't come back. What's that all about? Well, it's kind of like this graveyard. It's like Jesus comes through and he finds all these buried treasure. All these people. All these people that he died for. And he says, oh, I know where these people are. I'm coming back and I'm going to come get them. I'm going to go buy everything. For we are not our own. We were bought with a price. He bought us. He bought all of us who were being buried with him to also be, shared, be raised with him in his resurrection. And he's coming back. I'll give everything to buy this dormitory, this cemetery, these sleepers. So Luther, one more time, picks this up of changing this idea of the reaper coming to harvest. Uh, remembering that verse in, in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. So again, Luther's words where he says, we need to learn a new language about death because it's unnatural and there is judgment, and the reaper is grim for those outside of Christ, for that part of us that still needs to hear the gospel, that needs the light of Christ to shine upon us, because that's still there. I'm not saying that we're not afraid of death, or at least afraid of dying. Fear is real. It is real and true and actual. And it's this word which we need to hear again and again and again. And Luther, for me, is a great hearing aid. And he says this, we must henceforth learn a new language and speech in talking of death and the grave when we die. It should not be called dying, but being sown for the coming summer, and that the churchyard or burial mound is not a mound of dead bodies, but an acre full of grain, called God's grain, which is to sprout again and to grow more beautifully than any man can comprehend. Among Christians, this ought to be a distinctive, common, and current language, for since they are different people who no longer live and speak in an earthly but in a heavenly manner, as the children of God and companions of angels, they must also use a different language. So, then, when I see my father, mother, brother, sister, child, or friend buried and lie under the ground, I as a Christian should not say, there lies a foul, decayed carcass or corpse, but... There lies my dear father, mother, child, prince, husband, wife, prince, and lord. And today or tomorrow I too shall lie there with them. But what are they? Pure kernels of grain, which will grow immortal and imperishable, far more beautiful than the green crops coming when the summer comes. So, here's a story. This goes back to the guy that I ripped off earlier. It's a really good talk. Um, he was right. He said, yeah, I think he prefaced it. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I'll bet if I didn't tell you it was in the Bible, you wouldn't believe me that it was. But it is. Um, uh, two verses in 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings is in the book I, I go to a ton. But there's Elisha and Elijah, two great prophets. Elijah and Elijah, di Elijah died. 
and Elijah took his place. And towards the end of Elisha's life, this is the last um, story. Just two verses, no context before, no context after. It just it just sort of drops in. And if you need to find a place where there are Vikings uh, in, or, or something like that, a marauding band of, of, of rebels or a gang, these are your two verses. 2 Kings 13. So Elisha died and they buried him. Uh, now the ha- now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. So I guess they came every every year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. <laughs> Does anybody remember that story? I did not. I confess, I've read it, but I have never. I don't remember that story. So here it is. Elisha dies. He's a great prophet. What's a prophet? A man who speaks for the people. And then another guy dies. Um, and I guess these Vikings, this gang comes around about this time every year. And sure enough, they did right about the time that Elisha was being buried. So there's his open grave and this other guy dies. And so they're like, what are we going to do? It's like, I don't know. Throw him in with Elisha. So they chunk him in there with Elisha. Who was this guy? No idea. What was his name? I have no idea. Where was he from? No idea. Good people? No idea. Did they lead a good life? No idea. Was he a scoundrel? Have no idea. We have no earthly idea who this man was. And this is a weird story. Dude gets thrown into a grave, pops up, he's like, I'm here. <laughs> you know, he goes on the speaking circuit. Yep, I'm the guy that fell into the grave and can walk around and do all this sort of thing. Weird story, but here's the thing. What are we doing with this story? All that matters, doesn't matter who you are, good, bad, color you are, where you came from, who your people are, what your potential is, etc., 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 and so forth. Um, what matters? What matters in this story? Who you buried with. <laughs> who you buried with. Um, uh, all that matters is who you're buried with. But here's the thing. That guy died, and he died again. He died twice, kind of like Lazarus, which is really sad. You know, he gets dies, gets thrown in the grave, rises again, has to die again, goes through the whole thing. Uh, Elisha, the prophet, speaks the word of God, but you and me, here's the good news: you're buried with the word of God made flesh. Um, uh, he was buried with the prophet who spoke for God, but we're buried with the word that brings hope into all things, even bringing about the things that are not. Um, uh, And you were buried with him, you'll live with him. You bounce into his grave and you're going to bounce out with him. Um, If you're buried with Christ in his crucifixion, we shall also all live with him in his resurrection. And here's how Paul put it in Romans 6. This is the final word to those obscure, (coughs) weird verses in 2 Kings. Here's Paul. Romans 6, um, 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider, if you're keeping up, that's that great word, logitsumai, that I like so much. Um, For you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So a good way to finish this off. Paul was a great mocker. I mean, he was. It'd be fun to be fun to meet Paul one day. Um, uh, he picked on a group called the Epicureans, which a lot of us will know about because they just sort of really valued um, the good things, kind of hedonist pleasures of life. You know, you eat, drink, be merry, because today is the day. Carpe diem, uh, seize the day. Um, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul said that is. That's a bad idea. Don't do that because of all we just talked about with judgment and it's certain, final, true. But he would say this. Eat, drink, and be merry, friends, for tomorrow we shall live forever. And we get to live this life free. Um, we're all going to die. It's a terminal diagnosis. But we who have been buried with Christ have already died. And so in that sense, that specific sense, we can now face the death, our physical death, uh, freely. And, uh, and maybe with some expectation that we're going to be raised uh, like kernels of wheat, you know, being brought ripe in the summer. Um, so let me pray and we'll have a question or two. Lord, I am always wrong somewhere. Um, correct me where I'm wrong, but strengthen your word, I beg of you, um, where it would provide hope and uh, healing and uh a certainty to face our death and the death of those that we love with uh, a newfound hope, a certain and sure uh, sense of your resurrection. Uh, Correct me where I was wrong, but strengthen your word, Lord, uh, where it needs to speak. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Comments or thoughts? Questions? You know, I'm going to say one thing. Yeah, Alan. There was a time not too long ago when if I saw a class on mortality, I probably wouldn't have chosen it to come to for three weeks. And as I've gotten older, I you know, think about things that are beneficial being older. And, you know, I could think about things like, well, I get to play the uptease in golf or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but I looked at this class, and it's a, it's a cross-section of ages of people. And I think about death, and I think about it in the physical sense. And that's one thing, but think about it in the spiritual sense is altogether different. Yeah. And the three weeks you've done this has helped me tremendously at any rate, and especially the, the Bible verses. And I, now, thank you. Now, you may need to teach one more class for me, but still, this is this has been most uh, insightful to me. Well, thank you, Alex. I, I intended several months ago when I thought about this, and, and I need, we need to work this in somewhere. I will. Um, more the physical part too, about you know concrete questions like you know when is it okay to quit to keep fighting? Um, you know those kinds of questions. Maybe Kevin and I maybe we do that together or something. Um, uh, you know when is it okay to say no? I'm not going to do chemo anymore. That kind of that's where I thought I was going to go with this class, in fact, and I didn't. So sorry if that's what you were expecting or hoping, but um, that's an important peace and I want to do that too. I think that's part of what you were saying, but, but I'll, thank you, Alec. So, may the Lord be done. So. Yeah.
Anything else? Maybe one more? If somebody has something, a minute or two? Yeah. Um, I never noticed this until now. When I hear the verse, O death, where is your sting? I'm always like, I don't know. I, I'm, I feel it. I feel it. Like, um, and then I was looking, as I was reading, when you read this a minute ago, um, then shall come to pass the thing that's written in the future sin. Hmm. So maybe like the now and the not yet give you some room to say like your destiny is real. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Repeating this partly for the for the recording. I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because I think the last 15 minutes I could walk away with the impression that death doesn't hurt, and it hurts. There is sting. Um, uh, It's just not a victorious sting. The fatal wound has been defeated um, and it still hurts that's when they're all ready but it's coming where death shall be no more neither sighing nor pain nor thirst nor hunger nor tears nor anything else um, so I appreciate that so. Bill it strikes me that um, one way to say this is um, death has been defeated by death that's right. And that's the ultimate from yeah. God's nose at Satan. Yeah. I'm going to use you yeah. to save the world. Yeah. George Herbert seemed to get that mm-hmm. in this weird sort of way. That death thought he, he won. Or C.S. Lewis put it in, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. said, oh, you didn't hear about the deeper magic um, that death can unwork, can only be unworked through death, a particular death. Um, that's marvelous. Marvelous to behold. Well, go in peace. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.